Mark chapter 8. We just got started on Mark 8 when we had to quit a couple weeks ago. If you remember the flow, one of the greatest blessings that ever happened to our scripture is actually one of the greatest curses. And we brought this up as we looked at how we got our Bible. And that is when it was divided into chapters and verses. Why is it one of the greatest? Because we can say, go look at Isaiah 9-6. Why is it a curse? Because it broke up the narrative and made it choppy and made it episodic. Episodic means this. When we read, for example, have you ever done a study like a vacation Bible school or a special series on the parables of Jesus? The parables of Jesus are very important in context. But when you rip them out and you just look at them separately, they lose what Jesus was trying to do. Same with miracles. When I was a boy, we looked at miracle stories <clears throat> as a way to show that Jesus was the Son of God. That's certainly one of the reasons why we had miracles. But we lost the, the power of the narrative. So always remember where we were before we ran into Mark 8. He had fed 5,000 with almost nothing. He'd healed people. That, uh, a woman who had a daughter who had a demon, a deaf and mute man. He'd done all of that, and now he moves into chapter 8. Another large, day, another large crowd gathers. Since he had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Did anybody here catch the irony? Who was it that told him people were hungry at the 5,000? Didn't the disciples warn him? So he's setting them up. <clears throat> he's let the hunger go for a while, but the apostles are just standing around with, they don't have pockets, but their hands in their pockets, doing nothing. And so he finally calls them, and he's kind of like, the people are here. They're hungry. They're not going to make it home. What should happen? And they're just standing around going, oh, no. And before you think those stupid apostles, please understand how, well, think about how many times God has to kick us to get anything done. His disciples said, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them while they're staring at him? We look at this world sometimes and we say, where can I find that which will make me whole? that which will give me peace, that which will give my life meaning. And Jesus is there going, am I still a stranger? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked, seven. No? Okay. He calls the crowd to sit on the ground when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They did so. They had a few small fish as well, he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up about seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. You know what amazes me is what's left out. Because if we were writing this, wouldn't we write where he gathers them back together and he says, do you get it now? 
I've done it twice. Now he is going to do some of that review. But he just takes care of people. And I, I find that comforting. Because when God has to teach me the same lesson over and over and over, he doesn't start by slapping me and telling me I shouldn't be stupid. He just takes care of me and hopes I get the pattern, understanding the pattern. Well, about 4,000 were present. After he'd sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. This is important. That's not a separate issue. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. After all of this, the Pharisees are going, all well and good, but we want to see one. We want to see one. I would submit to you, that's not an out-of-line request. In John 15, I'm sorry, John 14, when Jesus tells his apostles he's going to go prepare a place for them, uh, do you remember one of them says, if you'll just show us the Father, that's all we're asking. Just, now he'd been with them and he'd, he'd seen all these signs, but he still just wants to see God. I know what that feels like. Have you ever been in a class where it seemed like you were the only believer and the, the teacher was ridiculing faith? Oh, so many times I've, I've talked to God and gone, it wouldn't take much. It really wouldn't. Just a big hand coming out, like, like one of the Monty Python opening skits, where a big hand just comes out and goes, well, you don't have to kill him. You, killing's always on the table. Killing is an option, but not, not necessary strictly. You could kick him just boom, a little bit. And that's it. And everybody in the room would believe. Maybe. Maybe they'd talk later about mass hypnosis and mass psychosis. And then what about the people that weren't in the room? God's not going to continually do signs everywhere all the time. Sometime you have to believe. Sometimes you just have to believe. What would, what would our marriage be like? I, I'm, I'm honored and privileged to be married to, to Miss Cammie. What would our marriage be like if every day I required her to find a way to prove she loved me? That satisfied me that day. Uh, how long would marriage last? How long would my life last? You get the point? After a while, you're just going to have to go on faith on this one. You're going to have to just uh, accept what has been done before. That said, who among us wouldn't like a sign? You know, we lived in Colorado, we lived um, at 6,700 feet and overlooking Pikes Peak. We had a $2 million view. You'd walk out on the deck and look at Pikes Peak. Beautiful, 14,114 feet. Every night as the sun goes down, the, the sand and dirt coming off of the Rockies, the winds would bring it up. So every night was a light show of sunset. 
I caught myself doing this because every night people would post pictures of the sunset and go, look, it's God at work. And my first thought is, it's light refraction through sand and there's a wind coming from, yes, it's God at work. Sometimes you have to look for God in the little things. I love the song, This is My Father's World. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Talking to these ministers in Little Rock, one of the things they said was how hard it is for them just to focus on God and how they would even go off into the woods. You know, I don't know if they really went to woods or if that was metaphorical. And they'd say they'd be trying to think about God and the bird would go by and they'd lose the tension. And I, I stood up, I said, no, the bird is God. That is not God, but it's a signal from God. Look at the bird, wonder about the bird, admire the bird, God made the bird. We see God in nature. And started talking about Romans 1, where Paul says everything that can be known about God can be known by the things that he made. Look around, see, and yet we ask for a sign. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. <laughs> How many times? except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. They, were, they didn't get what he was saying. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? I want to just stop there. I've had people tell me that they've had no luck in their life. And I'm looking at them. And they're talking to me, one, which, in other words, free counseling. They're sitting in a couch in a climate-controlled room. Huh. They're well-fed. They're not fainting with hunger. Sometimes they'll even have brought a beverage with them because they're Americans. And Amer I, I endorse it. Uh, only, only if you're in Europe and you see somebody carrying water bottles and stuff, American. We're the least hydrated people on the planet, evidently. So they'll be carrying these things, and, and I'm going, you've had hard times. I'm not, and you're going through one now. I'm not going to um, lessen that. I'm not going to treat that as a minor thing, but let's not get into the I've never seen God. Even now, you are surrounded with so much more than most. Let's start there. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Now, by the way, if you were in that boat and Jesus is hitting you with these questions and you don't get a chance to answer, wouldn't you rather be anywhere else? But they're trapped on the boat now. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? I guarantee you they went 12. They didn't go 12. No, they're, they're realizing we should be ashamed right now, but we're not sure why we should be ashamed. It's kind of like, guys, when you know you've done something wrong, but you're not sure what it was. You know you should be ashamed and in a posture of humility, but not sure why. Therefore, you walk through your day pretty carefully. Uh, as I, I forget how Jeff Foxworthy said it once when I heard him. Basically, he said, I just walk into the room, look at her, and said, I'd like to apologize for anything I might have said, done, or thought in the last six months. 
I'm not sure what it is, but I'd like to, permission to go to my room to think about it. I felt, they probably felt that way in the boat. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He asked them, he said to them, do you still not understand? By the way, I was at a place once with a lectureship, the guy doing this started talking about the deep meanings of the 12, the five, the seven. He lost the point. The point is it is random. It's not a special formula. If you have four for 4,000, and no. Trust. Just trusting God. They came to Bethsaida. This looks like we're hitting repeat. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Now, what's the difference here? Jesus is going to heal this man. What's the difference between this and the Pharisees? The Pharisees asked. That, that's huge right there. Um, the Pharisees were testing, pushing, demanding. These people, can you help our friend? Would you help our friend? It's a very different thing. Our posture in prayer sometimes matters. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Why would you do that? Wouldn't you convert more people in the village? But for Jesus, it's never been about the numbers. It's been about the person. Give him dignity. Don't put him on display. Give him dignity. When he'd spit on the man's eyes, all right. When I was a boy, that one really freaked me out. And put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Don't go there. Why? It gives Jesus time to get away before more people come running out demanding signs. But let's talk about this. I don't want us to get in the woods here or deep in the weeds or in a ditch and, and allow metaphor to overrule everything. And it's kind of like an English literature or a literature professor. Sorry, but this is true. Many literature professors kill the love of reading because you're not allowed just to read a story and enjoy it. No, you have to talk about all of its deeper meanings and it kills it. My son is one of those that I would watch him come home with the weirdest, pointless, most pointless stories ever written. But the teacher said they were very important. And I'll find all the hidden meanings. And he's going, I just want a story. Don't do that to scripture. So let's pull back. Why did he spit on the guy's eyes? I don't know. Next question. <laughs> Some people need ceremony. Some people need to have their fear reduced. Once you think about this, when a man, first of all, looked about, he saw people, but they looked like trees. What does that indicate to you about the length of his blindness? It was quite some time, but it wasn't from birth, was it? Or he wouldn't know what a tree was. Therefore, there came a time when he lost his eyesight. Think about the fear of that. 
Now his eyes have not been working. I don't know whether they're open or closed, but they're going to come a time where they're dry, hurting, maybe diseased. Jesus spits, lubricates them a bit. says, open them. Sometimes you're afraid to open something that hurts. You're afraid to let loose. That could have been it. It could have been that he needed ceremony. In which case, give him ceremony. We talked about marriage and how some need the ceremony and some do not. Um, I talked to a young couple today that I'm doing their wedding in a couple of weeks from today. And I, they, they, I showed them a marriage ceremony and they said, this is all we really need. And I said, well, our, if we just do this, it's going to be like the White House wedding. If you remember that one, uh, the Bell and White House wedding. I said, it's going to last about 11 minutes. And they said, that sounds good to us. Well, some, it does. Others, no. We need it to go a long time. Understood? He says, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. To me, I'm just seeing him manipulating and getting the guy to trust him enough to open his eyes and see. Just go ahead. Open your eyes and see. Um, any of you go, ever been forcibly taken to amusement parks? I'm not talking about those of you that love amusement parks. I'm talking about those of you that are married to or in a family of those who love amusement parks. Therefore, you are required to go. Now, it's not just enough that they frighten and disorient you on purpose. They want to take a picture of it so that you may have a record for life. So as the roller coaster is coming out of the big dark tunnel and you suddenly realize you're over the ground and you're about to twist and die, flash. Some people it's, other people it's, you closed your eyes. Did that make any of this go away? We tend to close our eyes when we don't trust what's about to happen. Think about this. Metaphorically, in our life, how many of times have we not looked for God because we're not trusting he's really there in that situation? We give him an out. We do that in prayer. Lord, if it be thy will, return them to a measure of health. Remember that Church of Christ liturgy? We have, litur we have liturgies. We just don't write them down. Return them to a measure of health. In other words, Lord, if you don't heal them, we're giving you an out. And if you only heal them a little bit instead of a lot, we're still calling it good. <laughs> or even worse, Lord, be with the doctors who treat them. Why are you asking that? Are they sick? Why pray for the people that drove up in Alexis? Pray for the sick person. But we're always afraid to ask for what we want. We're always afraid to push that one is that we won't get it and that'll hurt our faith. But there's another reason. Sometimes we do that because we're trying to protect God. Don't do that. Ask big. Go big. Say, this is what I want, God. I want this person healed. Will you always get it? Nope. Nope. Sometimes, tragically, you will not, and it will hurt your faith. But ask anyway. God says, go for it. This man seems to be a bit timid at first. 
that when his sight is restored, for some reason, whether it's because, as we think it is, Jesus doesn't want the publicity, or it could be because that village had been mean to him. He says, don't even go there. They don't even need to know that the king is here. You just go home. Now, we've gone over a lot of material here, and there is a a switch of subject a bit here in a bit. It all links in, but before we do that, any questions or comments or observations that you've got, and of course, if you say them to me, I'll repeat for those listening online. Those of you listening online, they have died. No, no, one is alive, raising his hand for help. Right. The, the question is, why didn't Christ heal him right the first time? Because we know he can. And my response really comes back to that some people need ceremony and some people need their fear to go away in stages. It doesn't go away all at once. Um, this man had some fear, which I would understand if I'd lost my sight. And I was afraid of what was happening. Who knows what quackery had been done to him in the meantime as well. After a while, you start losing faith. That's right. I love babies' noises. Do not be afraid of baby noises. That means the church is going to continue. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Again, why? We can talk about the logistics of being um, swamped with requests for signs, but there's another reason here. Jesus is walking about in the middle of the most fiercely monotheistic society that had ever existed. To claim he was equal with God, how long can you do that before they kill you? It's not going to be long. So Jesus keeps moving, keeps things quiet, moves at the right pace to get it all done three to four years. And then... They do kill him. When he comes back, what does he say? He says, tell everybody. But before then, you have to move. One of my favorite scenes, and we'll get to that as we go through Jesus' stories, is a group of people wanted to kill Jesus. And the Bible says they went to, uh, this whole mob wanted to throw him off a cliff. Think about that. Here's a, you're religious people, and this guy has so insulted your religion, you're going to throw him off a cliff. And the Bible says merely that he turned and walked through the midst of them. I need more information. What did that look like? I will tell you that, in my opinion, the only thing that explains this is that they did throw him off the cliff, and he didn't fall. Then he could walk through the midst of them. Think about it, kind of like a wily coyote or something. You throw them, and there's always that pause, except he doesn't fall, just looks at them. And then starts walking. Wouldn't you get out of the way? 
I've had people say he went through the midst of them with fists and elbows, and possibly, but it doesn't sound like him. There were so many times he could have died, he had to take this at the right pace, kind of like opening our eyes. He has to do it in stages. Um, that makes sense to anybody in the room? I know he's had to lead me by stages. So, is your hand up? Yeah. Uh, is this the passage where Christ told Peter upon the rock I will build Right. Well, that's an excellent question. Um, Mark's gospel is, as we've talked about, really Peter's gospel. Uh, Mark was writing down the stories that Peter told. At least that's what most historians and scholars have said over history. There are some that question it. Let's just go with that. So the, answer, the question is, why doesn't he then include the bet, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that Matthew includes about this episode? It's always dangerous to, to read somebody's mind 2,000 years before, you know, separate from you. My thought here is that that was so well known, it didn't need to be said. Remember that about the Gospels. When you're reading the Gospels, these were not new stories to the people that were hearing them. That's why they're so short. They're so truncated. The people already knew the details. Like the road to Emmaus, that sermon, they knew the details. Why did Matthew put it in? Because Matthew's target audience was not the early church. It was Judaism. And so he had to explain there's a new sheriff in town and the new way of things are put. And so Matthew will give more details about the transference of authority from the community at large to Jesus over the community than, than Mark does. By the way, why would they say John the Baptist? Remember, John the Baptist had been killed, but most people hadn't seen that. Many would never have heard of it. Well, how did, did, didn't they, when they saw him, didn't they? Well, there were no pictures. You didn't know what people looked like. Well, he's calling himself Jesus, not John. People use different names in different places, like Simon Peter, right? Saul, Paul, um, what about Elijah? Well, again, the scripture says Elijah will come before the Messiah. And so many of them thought he was the guy to get there before the Messiah, but not the Messiah. Paul, by the way, what does the word Messiah mean? I think we all know, but anointed one, the one chosen by God for this. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Remember this as I brought up during the lesson. If Jesus cannot escape Gethsemane, why do we think we have the right to? And look who's going to reject him. The elders, that just means the leading lights in the community. The chief priest, teacher of the law, the religious authorities. They're going to reject me. Why, why, why would that group reject Jesus? Now, 
I want, to, I want to explain something. I don't believe that people that are religious authorities are inherently evil by any stretch or that they are more corrupt than the common person at all. But there is a reason why that particular time those particular authorities would resist Jesus. Because if he wins, they lose power. That's, in fact, that's why that really bizarre parable about the husbandman, the people that rented the field, when the owner sends somebody to collect the rent, they kill him. Eventually, he sends his own son saying, they will, they'll have to honor my son. And the, and the renters say, if we, oh, here's the son. He's the heir. If we kill him, we'll get to keep the field. What a stupid thing. But he was saying that about the leaders then, thinking, if we just kill him, we can keep everything the way it was. And so that's why they rejected him. It's a matter of power. Think about this. Power and status is a cancer. You know, you've been told that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But think about it. You know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The old, I think it was black and white, wasn't it? It was when I watched it. Of course, we had a little monochrome TV. Um, think of this. It is so easy to be corrupted by power. I, I just, I have a hobby. Um, several, but one of my big hobbies is music history. And I'm I just, sometimes whenever I can't read all the books, I get them on audiobook and plug my phone in, and as I'm driving, I listen. And this last time was about Jerry Lee Lewis, and uh, the more you know about Jerry Lee Lewis, the more you can say oh, you love his music, but he was completely unlikable at every stage. But his cousin was Jimmy Lee Swaggart. And you see the parallel growing, and Swaggart came from exact Faraday, Louisiana, same dirt poor area, always about God, 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 and humility in God, and humility in God, then all of a sudden it became limos and Learjets. And then the fall. It's something I have to remember sometimes. If I get everything I want, will I be the person God wants? Or will it corrupt me? Or has it already? Um, but I want, I want to, before we leave, I, if you have questions or comments about that, fair enough, but I really want to look at the next verse and we can come back. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter fesses up, doesn't he? Tell me, you, you've got to stop talking like that. That's causing problems. Well, you're not going to die. You're the anointed one. Don't Have faith, Jesus. We only see absurdity in the rearview mirror sometimes. This is one of those. So Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. Yeah, I, and then he rebukes Peter. Think of it. They're probably watching him, and he's just turning to them going, turns back, get behind me, Satan. Okay. Not what you want to hear from Jesus. But why, why would he call him Satan? Don't you think Jesus was tempted to avoid all this pain? The Bible says he was tested in every way like we are. And he's saying, you know, you're not helping. 
you're not helping at all. I can remember when Duncan joined the Marine Corps, some of his friends didn't help at all. Instead of, we'll be praying for you, even we don't agree with you, but it was, well, that's stupid. You're going to be, you know, people are going to shoot at you, and this is wrong, and you could die. I'm thinking, that's not helping. That's not the thought you want. Peter's not being helpful here. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. By the way, Jesus could say that sentence to me almost every day of my life. I have to remind myself to think of the things of God, not my things. One of the things, talking to this this group of ministers, um, I talked to them about chaos and the Spirit of God. A little bit of what we did at the very end there. Uh, and about the birds that were interrupting them and such. I said, please know this. God is not found in our plans. He is found in the interruptions. He's not really found in our successes. He's found in the rubble of our failures. That's where we see, as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. It is something I have to remind myself of every day. And I do that with my quiet time or with the music time in my life. I make a time either for one or both every day. Some people's quiet time is just to be still and listen to God. Mine, I have to be still and notice. Look, see, think. My wife, God bless her, understands this. And she, when I'm sitting in a chair, sometimes just dust around me. Because she knows I'm just sitting there, but something's happening. Leave him alone. And most women wouldn't have put up with that. And most women, if they see a man resting, it really bothers them. Uh, but I need to think about what are the concerns of God here, not mine. Yes, please. That, that is wonderfully insightful. Her, her question was, instead of being tempted or tested, could it be he was tempted and tested to stay longer because he's looking at them thinking they're not ready? I think that's wonderfully insightful. I think that has to be worked into the equation here. Are we ever ready? When a young couple gets married, do you ever think, I don't know if they know what they're getting into? Or when somebody joins the military? Or when somebody goes off to university? I remember when we dropped Kyra off at university, I couldn't talk. I don't know, for maybe an hour on the way home. When we dropped off our son, he was, what, seven or eight for the first time to go into Guyana on a medical mission. I couldn't talk for the longest time. I kept thinking, we're not ready. We're not ready. I have been by many people's deathbeds where they were in their 80s or 90s. They knew they were dying. They've been talking about looking forward to being with Jesus. And then in the last few minutes, it's basically, I'm not ready. Why? Because we're never ready. We're never ready. 
My father talks to me about when he was in the Navy during the Korean War, but not actually in combat. And they were training them to jump off of the side of a ship. Perfectly good ship. But in case something went wrong, you needed to know how to jump off of it. And because it could be burning, you had to learn how to go deep and how then to come back and do this with your arms to get the flames away to take a breath and go back down. And he had, had never been in the water long. Uh, my first, I didn't ask him, why did you join the Navy then? Has you seen one of the brochures? Anyway, he said he was standing on the edge. Everybody, one after another, the, the chief would say, jump, and they'd jump. Came up to me, came up to his turn, he said, jump. He says, I'm getting ready. The chief looked at him and said, jump. And he said, in just a second. He said, but I didn't get the word second out. I felt a mighty push. And he said, all of a sudden, it didn't matter if I was ready. I've thought about that a lot. They weren't ready. And I bet Jesus, because remember, Jesus' knowledge seems to be somewhat limited, doesn't it, in Scripture? There are sometimes he's surprised or he wonders or you look at him going, can I get another 12? Is this who I got? I think it's a great thing to think. Any other insights here? Because we're really, I, I can't go any further. We've hit our time. Over here. Oh, yes. Yes. At that point, he did not. The two main reasons we believe are, one, people would swamp him so much for signs and healings, he'd never get a chance to do his job teaching us, preparing the 12. And the second is that they would, uh, his enemies would have killed him long before he could have taught us. So he had to have a, a period of time to teach us, work with us, and then go to the cross. And so, after the cross, he said, tell everybody, didn't he? Go into all the world. But before then, it was a little different. Thank you for your patience. Oh, John, yeah, last one. Uh, JC. I, I was thinking about Jesus not wanting to go through with that. My opinion, the fact that Jesus is God and the fact that Jesus is human, the God part, we don't understand, but that's mystical that we just, we just accept. We don't understand God. Right. Humans, we understand. And we look at what he did in the garden when he was praying. I don't want to do this, God, and I'm paraphrasing. Right. Uh, but I, 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 let's see if we can find another way. And then it says in, in Hebrews chapter 5 where it says, Jesus learn obedience through his suffering. And I, I just, to reconcile those kinds of things, I feel I got a lot of comfort in those, oh, in those scriptures. Absolutely. To paraphrase real quick, when we look at Jesus going through things, we try to, you know, how did that look from the eyes of God? But we're not God. We can't do God. We can only do human. 
What you didn't say, but you kind of said, Hebrews 5 says, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. God had to learn to see things through human eyes too. That's why this is so important. Had you ever thought of that? He can be God and know all things, but you can know all things on an intellectual level. When you have to experience it, it's a different thing. It's kind of like guys standing beside your wife as she's giving birth. She's going, it hurts. And you're going, I know, I know. No. You can know on an intellectual level and say, yes, sweetie, those are... There's a very interesting molecule right now that's hitting that particular nerve. Don't do that. I'm not going to explain how I know that. Don't do that. An intellectual level is great to know, but when you experience it, then it changes everything. We got to quit.